Good. So I'm going to talk about dating this morning. Yay. Hey, Because that's the space that you're in, or the space that you have been, you have been dating, and it's, it's not worked out, and you're like, I'd love to get some healing and some learning from that. Or you're not, but you'd love to. You'd love to. You're praying about meeting that person that it might lead towards marriage. Or the other end of the spectrum, you're thinking, yeah, that's not really me. I've been married 10, 20, 30 years, got kids. Maybe this is a Sunday not really for me. I want to just say to you, can I encourage you to stay right with me? Because this is a message for all of us. I'll tell you somebody, I really wanted to know what was happening. I wanted to know who this guy was and how they were going to go about it. And the Bible is really clear that the church is a family. That's who we are. That's what we're, the perspective household of God. Okay, so even if you're not dating and have no then this still really matters because we want to be a family where we have a healthy culture of day. Because we want to be a family we go about it causes each other to thrive and flourish and God is honored. Okay? So this isn't just for meet and date and can move towards marriage. That's what God's calling them to in a way that is God honoring and good for everyone. And the story I want to take us into in the Bible is the story that was quite formative in the early part of this series. So if you're with us in the first wonderful book of Ruth, in uh, and September, third messages of this series, to learn about maleness and femaleness. I'm going to go back into that very formative text for us to see what it can teach us about a healthy culture uh, of dating. Now, just to be clear, the book of Ruth is not primarily a book about dating. It's not in the Bible as a manual for how to find a spouse. That's not primarily why the book of Ruth is there. Okay, primarily, the book of Ruth is there to fit into the narrative that Becca was talking about in worship just now. That's why the book of Ruth sits in there, because it tells the story of God's redemptive plans and purposes. He draws people to his family to, to make a big family of every tribe and nation and tongue. And the book of Ruth fits into that big overarching narrative. But, or and, secondarily, I think there are some incredibly helpful principles in cultivating their relationship. Boaz and Ruth go about forming and cultivating their relationship that doesn't lead, does indeed lead to marriage. Okay? Chapter 4. We're going to look at three little scenes. Three little scenes within the four chapters of the book. Only a four chapter long book. And I want um, but just the, the initial context, principles or priorities in, in, in 1 and verse 15 in a moment, is if you don't know the story of Ruth, it is a beautiful story. Do read it for yourself, just four chapters. It's such a beautiful story. And what's happened is that in about 1200 or so BC, an Israelite family, mother, father, and two sons, have moved to Moab, a neighboring nation, because of the famine in Israel. And then tragedy strikes because the father, the husband, dies. And then tragedy strikes again because 10 years name's Naomi, and she's now a, a, a widowed uh, a, a widow, which makes her extremely vulnerable in that context because she is a foreigner, she is a woman, she has no husband and no son. So she's very, very vulnerable in that context. So one question really is left for her. She needs to go home. She decides to go home, back towards, uh, back to Israel. Two sons married two women in Moab, and they too have been widowed. This is in law because her two sons married two women in Moab, and they too have been widowed. And the question is, will those two women come back with her? Stay here. And she's in Moab. And Naomi pleads with them both, stay here. And she says, basically, you're still young. You come back to Israel with me. You'll be foreign. You'll be widowed. Children without any kind of father or dowry. Stay here if you want a good life. And Orpah, one of the two sisters, eventually relents. She says, yeah, I, I think I will do that. Uh, but Ruth decides to stay. Verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. 
Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will go. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. What I think this whole passage teaches us is three priorities, okay? There are no rules to dating. I'm not about to lay down Philip's or in the ancient world there was no dating or the Bible's rules to dating because there aren't any. In the ancient world there was no such thing. This is a think. There are some really helpful priorities about just giving you rules, but I do think to have at play, which is incredibly formative to their relationship. And I think we all know, don't we, in any walk of life, the priorities that we set form what we do, right? The priorities that we have, what we think is most important, will affect what we do, how we speak, the choices that we make. And I think if you have the right priorities in play, or the right principles in play, you can be or not, okay? First priority that they have in place, that I'd encourage you to have in place, and us as a church to encourage together, is to prioritize the mission over marriage. The mission over marriage. Don't miss how significant Ruth's decision is in what she does. Because Naomi basically says to her, if you want a home, is the uh, essence of what she says. And Ruth, I think it's fair to say, effectively replies, I, I do want to be married again, but I want God more. That's the kind of essence of Ruth's response. I think we can tell from the end of the story, spoiler alert, her and Boaz do marry, that that is part of her desire. But her ultimate desire is, I want God the most. And something's happened in Ruth's heart that is clearly beautiful. She wasn't part of the people of God, but something through what she's seen through Naomi or her family, her heart is so gripped by the beauty and the wonder and the holiness and the truth of God that she's able to say, I do want this good thing, but I want this greater thing more. It's a really beautiful thing to see. The mission is bigger than the desire for marriage. Her desire is to love God and love people, right? And that is the essence of Christianity. When Jesus was asked, like, what, you know, what does this all boil down to? Your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think Ruth, 1,200 years earlier, is kind of almost paraphrasing Jesus by saying, putting it in her language, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I'm going to love God and love people with all my heart, soul and mind. And because of that, Ruth is prepared to, if not give up, then at least risk the good thing, this thing, loving God, enjoying God, serving God, loving the people in front of her. Her priority is the mission more than it is the marriage, God loving people. Priority is the mission of God, loving God, loving people. She is able to love the person who's in front of her. Who's God put in front of her to love? He hasn't put a husband in front of her at the moment to love. He's put Naomi in front of her. And so Ruth, because the priority sacrifices for Naomi, but she loves Naomi, commits her heart in the most wonderful, wonderful way. So I'm kind of starting out like kind of quite punchy right from the beginning. And of course, if you're here not as a Christian, this obviously doesn't make sense. This is not a priority that you currently have. And that's fine. We're glad that you're here looking into whether it might be. But for those of us that are Christians, I would urge you, the first priority is to set in front of you the good thing of marriage. Don't relegate that, but we're elevating the mission over the marriage. And all of us are called to that. Young, old, male, female, single, married, widow, divorced. We've all been given in people for God. So first point this morning, wherever you are actually, 
on the, uh, the space, as it were. And this, this relates to all of us, whether we're in a dating relationship or we'd like to be or, or not. What's that good thing that God has given us that we desire? It probably is a good thing for most of us. I'm not asking us to relegate that, and nor is God. But he is asking all of us, always, to elevate him above all things. And the mission of God is a desire for children or the desire for primary. And so whether it's the desire for a spouse or the desire and to be, have a, a st- whatever it is, then all of those things can probably are good things. But the call, this, whatever it is, then all of those good things, but to elevate the mission of God. And what you want, I would say, in a dating relationship, to find somebody who's also got the same priority. The mission of God, over and above even the good things of marriage and children and family. Uh, priority that I would put for you from this text is to prioritize character over chemistry. Mission over marriage and character over chemistry. Verse chapter 2 and verse 4. And Ruth does not. Ruth and Naomi travel back to Judah, and Ruth does not sit on her hands. This is not a girl that kind of just finds a tower, climbs up to it, and waits for a prince. This is a girl who's proactive. She gets on with it, both in thinking around primarily providing for Naomi, but also she gets uh, options in her life. And she goes out to work hard and do to provide for Naomi. Verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, what does that young woman belong, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, well, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. There she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live. Done. May you be richly rewarded. May the Lord repay you for whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Second priority I would put before you from this text is to prioritize character over chemistry. Now, is chemistry or romance or physical, not least because that important? Yeah, of course it is. We all know that. And obviously it would be odd not to date somebody or marry somebody that you weren't attracted to. So, of course, it's important. And is Boaz attracted to Ruth in that sense, physically, like a chemistry thing? I think he probably is. I'm just speculating a bit, but I think he probably is. Because in verse 5, we're told that he notices her, i.e. He, he sees her. And then he asks something about her, which basically he says, is she married? <laughs> I'd like to get to know her. So he sees her physically and he notices her. So there probably is a spark physically that attracted me to begin a conversation. So of course it's important, of course it's natural, of course it's part of forming a relationship. But I think Boaz's priority is her character over 
any chemistry, any physical, romantic, sexual chemistry. Why do I think that? Well, look at verse 11. Look at the first thing that he says about her. Mind you what he said in verse 11. He says, I've been told, this is their kind of first interaction. He says, I've been told all about what you've interaction. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you didn't know before. Another one that came to live with the people you didn't know. You, you're a courageous person to have done that. Wow, you're a pretty loyal person to have stuck with your family like that. You must be a, you're a loving, sacrificial, courageous person, and here you are with her character. We don't know for certain whether he's attracted to her physically, but we do know he's attracted to her character. I think Boaz knows what his great-great-grandson, Proverbs 31, verse 30, charm is deceit, which is in Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty in vain. Boaz already there. And if you are in the dating world, as I was not too long ago, you don't need me to tell you that what you're being urged to prioritize is chemistry, is charm, is attraction, is sexual fireworks. And what Boaz is seeing and he's beginning to speak into and what the timeless word of God tells us is that charm can actually be deceitful, not just neutral. If that's your priority. And I think in reverse, Ruth, even though she's there with some other thinking is we are so we need some security so in the ancient world she what she's thinking is we are so vulnerable is there somebody in Naomi's but I think she also sees this is a man of outstanding character let me give you four things about Boaz's character that I think are to be commended and looked after and looked for but most importantly cultivated in ourselves whether we're men or women number one is that Boaz loves to pray I think bit speculative, but I think Boaz loves to pray. Verse 12, Arthur, he's complimented you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. If for him it's natural just to speak the words of God over her. Now it's not some lengthy prayer, it's not some very intense prayer, he's not inviting her to a fortnight of prayer and fasting, see whether they're going to get married. But it just seems like it's just natural for him to speak something natural for him to express his faith. Number two, he's not just prayerful, he's protective. Number two, he's not just prayerfulizing way, in a godly way, gentle way, strong way. Verse nine, he says, I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. Gentle way, strong way, context, the vulnerability that goes with her. And he's concerned, not for what he can get from her, but for her safety, for her well-being. Thirdly, he's generous He's generous. He ensures she can make a good living from what she is doing on, in, in his field. And finally, he's hospitable. Did you notice that? And again, I'm not saying this is like the top, top dating tips, but it's just interesting that he, he finds a way for them to eat together, to get to know her. He knows that in the space of hospitality, there is uh, good things can happen. So I think we know, or I think, I know, we know nothing about whether Boaz is good-looking, whether he's funny, whether he's witty, whether he's charming, whether he's got impressive credentials, what his bank balance is like, whether he is wealthy. What we do know is that he's prayerful, appropriately protective, he's generous, he's, his faith makes a difference to who he is. Makes a difference. Real, it's authentic. He's the kind of guy that I would want my daughter to date one day. Kind of guy, he's the kind of person if you like, that I would want my son 
he's the, he could be the kind of woman, if you see what I mean, I'd want my son to date one day. These aren't exclusively male characteristics, prayerful, protective, generous, hospitable. And this is what I think Christian dating ultimately comes down to, is, is, is finding somebody who has the same priorities as you. That if they show an interest in church, it's, just, it's not really the question. The question is, what are my priorities in God? And is there somebody that God has brought into my midst who shares those priorities? Someone who shares those priorities. Because what happens, usually, and I know you're going to tell me the exception and so on and so forth, and maybe it's different for you and you're unique, and, but generally, what happens when a Christian dates a non for the Christian? Loving. If the priority stays the same for the Christian, loving God, loving people, shout out. Because the priority is loving God, loving people, both person gets to church, giving your money away, opening up your home to other believers, praying and so forth. So the person has to get, get pushed to the margin. Or the reverse happens, the person becomes the priority and the mission of God. So this is not about us being exclusive or having rules and, and occasionally when somebody else expresses a genuine, authentic desire to explore faith for themselves, I know those things can be at play, but generally, it's just really simple in many ways. If your priority is to love God and love people, to begin to bond with somebody who's not got the same priority, it's not going to work, either for the priority or for either of the people. At which point, I'm just going to take a little pause and sidebar, because I've been talking for a little bit. I'm going to ask Caroline, if you don't know Caroline, she's my wonderful wife, to come and share something of our story, just to kind of illustrate some of the things that I'm saying. And she's great, so can you welcome her, please? Hi, so I'm Caroline. Uh, Philip and I have been married for four years, and before that we had kind of two blocks of dating. Um, and during the whole dating time, God just taught me a lot about myself and about him. Initiation. So firstly, um, the kind of initiation of our dating time, um, God taught me about being proactive, but also trusting in him. So in the story of Ruth, she initiated making herself known to Boaz. She was serving her mother-in-law and collecting grain, and it was within that context that she met Boaz. So for both later, she essentially offers him a marriage proposal. So for both Philip and I, we were stuck into different prayer meetings, so kind of saw each other from afar, and we first met at a... And then we actually properly met at a Students in Twenties conference, although Philip was actually in his 30s at the time. <laughs> students in, um, and I was one of those people that was kind of looking around every day, trying to notice him, um, and I did happen to see him every day, but sadly he didn't notice me. Um, and I was really praying for an opportunity for us to talk. Um, and then it just got to the final day, and, and just allow myself to be noticed... And then it was after that, that that Philip then initiated our first date. So it was kind of allowing myself to be noticed, but then let, letting him take a lead in initiating our first date. And then secondly, I think this ensuring God was our priority, that was the second thing that God really spoke to me about. Um, Philip sadly time. So after about five months of dating, um, Philip sadly ended our relationship. And this was a wedding. And... Um, and I remember Joel, you know, I think we're, re- we're going to get married. And he was like, no, I don't think we are. Um, it turns out I was right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this, um, this separation period was actually very difficult, ensuring he was our priority and that he was enough no matter what happened. Yeah, whether I was married or single or whatever. And yeah, it was just really that God was challenging me to think about who was first in my heart. Um, and for me, that was being willing to give Philip up if, if God called me to that, or being willing to give up marriage, 
and two years later, good desires. So we actually met again two years later, um, and it was when we were back together, and there's a verse which in treating Philip as a brother, um, she does him good, not harm, all the days of his life. And I just wanted to be really careful that I was honouring to his life, but also if, if it worked out that he, he wasn't my future husband, that I was honouring to whoever might be. Um, and I think both of us just yeah thought that was a really helpful way of thinking. So this also helped us to form boundaries around purity um, and how we could please and honour God. So we knew that God had given sex as a gift for within marriage. So instead of thinking how, um, and as a result, we, we decided just for a time not to kiss because we thought it, it in our case, it kind of was unhelpful, and we just wanted to save it. Now, we definitely didn't get this perfectly right at all. Um, there are no clear rules about what you should or shouldn't do, but it was just helpful to know our vulnerabilities and be accountable to each other and other people and just set limits from early on and just have as our vision that we wanted to honour God and glorify him and treat Amazing. each other respectfully, almost as a brother and sister. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. More concise than me, as you can tell. Um, but I just want to pick up on a couple of things. One, I, I totally agree. Um, but I just what we're going to say, but we've had a <laughs> busy week, so um, not as much as we'd like to be. But I, I agree that we're, the, the question is, is better phrased in terms of the purity sexually thing, because again, this is what you guys often ask and talk about. You know, what can, it's, use what Caroline's done, reverse the question, not what can we do. But how can we pursue God? How can we chase after holiness? How can we pursue purity? How can we honour God in this relationship as regards the physicality? Over and above, kind of subtext is like how far, how much can we do? How much of the gift can we unwrap now that means that it's like okay? And that's, that is not God's heart. God's heart is a heart of abundance. It's like there's this beautiful thing that I've created to bond a husband and wife together in a covenant, permanent commitment, and sex does that. So just leave it in its beautiful gift and then enjoy some of the, I don't know how to extend the analogy, but some of the, the ribbons, <laughs> I don't know, the, at different times that we feel helped us and served us well. Um, but the, the ultimate question is to ask is how can we flee from sin and how can we pursue holiness and purity? And if you ask those questions, you'll notice, and they ask questions about why. And who is this God that you think he was so worth it to honor him in that way? The final principle comes out of chapter 3. Chapter 3, and Caroline alluded to it, this initiation moment. So Ruth's already been on the front foot in terms of putting herself in the, the field, if you like. And then she really gets on the front foot. And it's a very to get into now. But essentially, because they discovered that Boaz is related to Naomi's family, Naomi and Ruth think that it's related to Naomi's family. Naomi and Ruth redeem a role in Jewish custom and law, i.e. be the relative, the male relative, who keeps the family Jewish custom and law. They work out a plan. And the plan is that Naomi, uh, sorry, Ruth goes to effectively, I suppose, a kind of end-of-work party almost. It's like a dinner after the harvest has been taken in. Lots of people are there, and they fall, people fall asleep. They go to sleep on the threshing floor after a good party, after a good day's work. And then extraordinarily, Ruth approaches the sleeping Boaz, which is a, not, which is a very distinct and, and kind of uh, gentle thing to do. Boaz wakes up, and like a typical bloke, ble bleary-eyed, in verse 9, he says, Who are you? And she says, I am your servant Ruth, guardian redeemer of our family. Which is two things. You are a kinsman or guardian redeemer of our family. Which is two things. One, 
Would you be the man that brings security? What she's saying. Two, would you marry me? It's basically what she's saying. And Boaz is he's completely chosen me over the younger guys. He even says to her, I can't believe you've chosen it over something else. But the principle here, over and above the initiation point that Caroline mentioned, is actually this, that, she, that they are prioritizing the public over the private. So mission over marriage, character over chemistry, public over private. What's my point there? Everything Ruth and Boaz do is done in public. It's done in the sight of others. The first time they talk is in a field of harvesters. The, second time, the first time they have dinner together is with other workers there. Boaz is known by the community, chapter 2, verse 1, to be a man of noble standing. Later on in chapter 4, he discusses the marriage proposal with other people. And here, in this incredible scene on the threshing floor, marriage proposal, very intimate and moving and, and kind of edgy, it asks us some questions. Even within that, it's still done in public. Other people are asleep on the floor, I assume. It's a, a kind of a house for this. It's like, a, I guess, in our, in our language, it's, a, it's a, a kind of a house party and people have crashed on the living room floor within community. Done in public in some way. Our culture now is so far removed from these contexts of community. Our culture is so far different from the idea of having cousins and uncles and aunts around us, of, being, of, of staying in the village that we grew up in. And I'm not particularly harking back for a, a, a different time, necessarily, or, or wishing we were in a different part of the world, but I am just reminding us that we live in a credibly individualistic formed with other people looking on, which, which protects their reputation and their purity and so forth. And it means that you've got the, you've got the community at work, all the traditional filters that have been it, through history, have been there, as relationships have been formed, are there. People know about Boaz. They know whether what I've described to you, the eating together, the talking, the praying, is just an act to get girls, or whether it's the real deal. They know that, because he's a man of noble standing. And she would have heard that. She would have heard, this is not this guy just playing a game with you. Online dating, which I think is by no means bad at all. And something like online dating, which I think is by no means bad at all, can be in private, isolated from the normal discernment filters that over the in would have spoken into the forging of relationships. So I think I would encourage us, this is why it's about the whole family, is to develop a culture, not of gossip, or of looking over one another's shoulder, or of wanting to see if someone's going to get married after they've just been out for a couple of coffees, but a culture where we all care, and we know each other, the truth in love. One person put it like this. I have found that there are no rules in dating, but my golden only rule is this. Lean hard on the people who know you best, love you most, and will tell you when you're wrong. Lean hard on the people who know you best, love you most, and will tell you when you're wrong. If you are getting to know someone, going out with someone, working towards possibly being engaged and getting married, if you've got people in your life who know you I'll love you lots and that you trust. All these kind of physical stuff or whatever or how quickly, all of those things get worked out in conversation, get worked whatever or how quickly, all of those things in community, not with a guy standing at the front saying, here are the do's, here are the don'ts. If you're part of a community in which you're known and loved, you talk these things through. And even for Caroline and I, we had these two different dating relationships and what we did, the, the, the kissing, non-kissing thing was different in both. So there are, there are differences, there are you know, shades of grey in, the, in these things. But to work it through, if it's just two people doing it together, one versus one, with all of the horns. But you can make some great decisions. 
some great decisions that do you good and the other person good and honor God when you talk about it in community. Let me give you one example before I close. When Carol and I were, I was consi- we were considering getting back together, so we'd been apart for the couple of years that she'd mentioned, and, and then this is a whole other story, but <laughs> if I did that, it was, I, I had felt that actually I really wanted to pursue her again, and I thought if I did that, it was to be, to get married. We weren't going to be kind of some of these, some of these things. Uh, write her a letter to kind of explain, but I was saying, listen, I, I'm here if you have me, type thing. But I was aware that we'd had these two years apart, that had been uncertain, type thing. Pretty deeply painful, even though it put us into the arms of God for the priority of mission. So I wanted to get it right. So what, what I did, I called an, another, an elder or a pastor, a friend of mine called David at Everyday Church Wimbledon, who knew me quite well, uh, and he and his wife had knew and loved Caroline from her days there and had pastored her. And I just called him up and said, this is what I'm thinking of doing. I'm thinking of writing his letter. I'm thinking of saying these things. What do you think? This is a bad idea. I'd encourage you not to do this. And I had to kind of take that risk. As it was, he kind of thought, no, this makes sense, and, and, and kind of blessed it as it were. But I told some friends that, and they thought it was pretty weird, almost kind of patriarchal. You sort of go, more stuff than we do. Actually, this is a godly, wise person who knows more stuff than we do, who's much more objective than we do, who loves uh, my now wife, but then not my wife, and was able to speak godly protection and blessing over her as well as me. It's just one example of welcoming the community into the forging of a relationship, I think, with those, with those three priorities to encourage all of us to think about the mission three priorities for all of us the mission over you insert in the gap what is that thing might be a desire to be married to meet somebody and God's not saying relegate it stamp on it he's saying elevate him elevate the mission of God so for all of us there'll be things vying for the, the primary the priority and the other two is in the public sphere and not just in the private sphere. Just a final thing to say before we worship and have communion, I think, would be a, a great way to respond together if we can have communion and things ready. Is I'm aware that I have put before you, even with our gritty story, which included lots of tears and, and uncertainty, I've put before you, I hope, a, a more of a vision of the ideal. Referred to the fact that things get messy and difficult and painful and we make mistakes. So if you are here this morning in any way thinking, well, that all sounds great, but that's not been my experience. I'm just finding it really hard to elevate the mission of God over my desire for marriage. Or actually, I've, I've just got it really wrong physically. We, or either in the, in the current moment, not waiting for it. I don't want you to hear that it's the ideal or nothing. For it. I don't want you to hear that it's the ideal for which Ruth and Boaz ultimately stand are the story of redemption, as Becky was saying before. And there is an abundance of grace to knit things together, to heal, to make whole, to bring forgiveness. And Judah, just utterly desolate, hopeless, pretty much. And the story finishes, yes, in a kind of beautiful, almost a Hollywood thing at the end, I suppose, in some way. With Ruth, she gets her husband, she gets her son. What about Naomi? What about Naomi? She doesn't marry again, bereft and asking big questions. She comes into the story desolate and bereft and asking big questions of God. And what's happened? She says, basically, I've now been more blessed than even seven sons could bless me. Which in those days means the completeness of blessing, basically. Why? Because her grand, she had a grandson in Ruth and Boaz 
who would go on, to, who would go on broken, wondering, questioning, challenging. She probably wanted a particular outcome. She didn't get that outcome, but she got something better. She got something better. She got something beautiful that changed history. And so I just want to finish by saying that we're not here to sort of just create, only bring an ideal, I suppose, to the peace and then just say, well, who, who can reach? I cried. Of course it's messy. Of course it's full of ups and downs. I cried some of my uh, biggest tears in the moment. I'm not sure and wondering and when and how, all that kind of stuff. I know what it's like. I do. I've been single for longer than I've been married in this church. But I know one thing. That when you allow your heart to the degree where Christ is sufficient and is, uh, is everything, when you see in Ruth actually what Ruth is really there for, to point us towards the one who left everything behind. Jesus who left everything behind, left his father behind, became poor. When you see in Boaz, Jesus, the one who spouse to give us a around us, who becomes our kinsman, redeemer, our bridegroom, our spouse to give us a hope and a future. If you allow, even in Boaz ultimately points to center yourselves on the comes enough. Everything just fits. Doesn't mean it's easy, but life just fits in its order in which God's created us to be. A bit of gluten-free and um, alcohol-free here and uh, bread and wine here, I think. Uh, and as I always say, this is a time just to center our, ourselves and our faith on the person that Ruth and Boaz point to, the person that left his homeland of heaven to himself to, to bring us into the Father's arms, believe in the broken body of Jesus Christ, the cost that was paid to bring us the body of Jesus Christ. Meal, this sacrament, as a means of grounding yourself in that truth and asking God to do some beautiful things. If you don't yet believe that, that's okay. We're glad that you're here. And then we're just going to begin to sing as Ross and Emma lead us. Come and take communion when you're ready. And then uh, there'll be some moments to come and be prayed for, as has already been alluded to. And we'll see what else God Andrew, you've already mentioned. David and Anne, maybe you could uh, join me over to my left as well. So you might want to take communion and then just go and receive some prayer from some of these guys. And just use this space at the front. Uh, to centre yourselves in these kind of few moments. And we might finish with some stories at the end to send us out in, in faith. So if Anne and David and, and Andrew and, and any others who are on that team who'd love to pray, prophesy, just be available over there to my left. Some prayer. In